ultimate opening question. Are you Appalachian? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Short Perfect. answer. Easy answer. <laughs> the Appalachian Mountains have a storied history woven together by decades of people who've often and proudly lived on the fringes. Here, we're all a little unconventional in our own right. Fringe Appalachia exists to demystify the other, whether they be in our midst or outside of our comfort zones. From the old-timers still living off the grid to the snake handlers, halfbacks, and dreaded Southern Democrats, you're all welcome here on the fringes. Welcome back, everybody. I think that y'all are in for a treat today. Welcome to Andrew Cooper. Andrew is a friend of ours. He is an educator, a husband, a father, and an all-around really great guy. So I'm looking forward to sharing his perspective on Appalachia um, historically and current Appalachian culture and looking forward to what we can learn from Andrew. So let's go ahead and get started. Andrew, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in Appalachia? My name is Andrew Cooper. I'm 31 years old. I currently uh, reside in Tennessee, um, born and raised in North Carolina. You know, I went to Berea College and at Berea College in, in southeastern Kentucky. There's a lot of focus on the study of Appalachia and, and what it, you know, what the Appalachian experience is. Yeah. And that really formed my consciousness of pieces of the culture that, that makes it something. And it's not mm-hmm. just you know, a bunch of backwards people living in the mountains in, in ways that, you know, everybody else looks down on. It's actually, there are origins and reasons why things are the way that they are. And I, mm-hmm. I just, I guess I, I found that interesting. And it, that was kind of the, the starting point in the building piece in, you know, feeling pride to be from this region and, and identify as someone, you know, with roots in this region. Do you find throughout most of your life you've had a feeling of pride attached to your Appalachian heritage? Um, Or sometimes do you have any kind of feeling of embarrassment or hesitation about some of the stereotypes that may surround this area? That's a question that the the answer would be different at different times in my life. And definitely as I've I've grown into adulthood, um, it's it's something definitely that comes from a point of pride. you know, if you would have asked me as a, an adolescent or a, even a teenager, um, you know, the answer probably would have come with hesitation and, and maybe even some embarrassment because of, you know, stereotypes and things like that. But um, as, a, as a young adult, you know, I, I started to find value in our culture. Mm-hmm. And and that it, it it is just that it's a, it's a subculture of the greater you know American experience that's that's different than than a lot of the other you know than the other regions in America and yeah. um, certainly has a lot of characteristic that sets it apart. everybody is enjoying this fun background noise of kids playing and squealing and cars moving in the driveway and you may hear some occasional fireworks so just enjoy those as part of the story and we'll keep rolling so talking about stereotypes what are some big Appalachian stereotypes that come to mind for you Um, whether they accurately represent the people here or not so accurately represent Appalachian people Um, big ones like incest and yeah. you know people uh you know doing things just being very odd and very backwards and very closed yeah. uh closed-minded but also closed to outsiders and distrusting mm-hmm. of outsiders yeah and there are reasons that 
that those elements of the culture exist, whether they were brought into this region or they developed here yeah. um, by the people that came. Um, you know, and and certainly you could look at others coming into the region and taking advantage of the people here, and, and that's why some of that developed, you know, in yeah. different ways and, and through different forms and usually natural resources. I would really love to dive deeper into this concept of outsiders in Appalachia because I think you have a really unique point of view um, in that you are Appalachian, you appreciate the context of those reactions, um, but you also live in a reality that may be impacted by that. Um, so for people who are listening, Andrew has a beautiful family, awesome, best behaved kids ever, and they're so sweet, um, and a beautiful wife named Kenya, and Kenya is from Mexico, and so they're living in Appalachia in an interracial relationship um, with children of two races, and so I would love to hear more about that outsider perspective historically in Appalachia and how that's impacting your daily life now, if at all. Uh, yeah, so... You know, definitely my experience, uh, you know, as an adult, and I say as an adult because I, I was married when I was 19 years old. Mm -hmm. um, my wife, like you said, is from Mexico. Um, she moved to the United States when she was five, lived in Los Angeles until she was about 10, and then uh, was actually on her way to Sanford, North Carolina, and, and stopped. Her family stopped to visit an aunt in Asheville, and they liked it so much they, they never left. Cool. And so, <laughs> you know, she even though she's from Mexico and she has, you know, a lot of her family's in Mexico and she has these ties to Mexico, mm -hmm. um, in a way, having been, you know, in the Appalachian region and especially after we started dating, you know, being exposed to the more, uh, you know, what we would think of as Appalachia in air quotes, you know, yeah. the more rural element outside of Asheville mm -hmm. um, and visiting my family and stuff, you know, she certainly identifies as you know if someone's to ask her she'd say well you know I'm I grew up in Asheville but I'm originally from Mexico you know right. that's how she would answer so even she has this piece that she kind of identifies being from here mm -hmm. you know as you know having grown up here since she was 10 so um as far as as far as our our marriage and and our ex experience with others um in public you know it, there have been times where we didn't feel like we were anything other than, you know, uh, a couple that both people were white, you know, yeah. uh, white Appalachian people, um, you know, and especially with my family. She's always been pretty accepted and, and no yeah. one, you know, especially aunts and uncles and extended family, at least to, to my knowledge, have never you know, treated her any different than they would have if, if she had been white. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there was, there was a little bit of, of hesitancy, I guess, on my parents' part, um, just because of the situation in which we got married and, and pretty much did everything backwards, um, yeah. you know, had, <laughs> had the kid first, then got married and then did the college thing. So, you yeah. know, <laughs> but uh, somehow yeah. accomplished all of it. So yeah. So, you guys. well, thank you. <laughs> Um, but definitely we've also had our, our fair share of, of moments when we step back and, and reflect on a negative situation and come to the conclusion that it's, it's racially motivated. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I don't want to take a lot of time to talk about that or, or, you know, to, you know, get on that old poor pitiful us, you know, yeah. but certainly, um, 
there, there was a time, and this is just a, an example of little things that could go unnoticed, but, you know, you notice these type of things. Um, you know, like she, we are at a football game. My son's playing flag football. And, you know, not all the parents know all the other parents, but for the most part, um, you know, all the other kids are scoring touchdowns. All the parents are clapping and cheering. And then my son runs, you know, 48-yard touchdown, and nobody else, like, cheers or claps. And it's yeah. just like – you know, is you don't they don't know every kid and they, they may not know my kid, but is that the reason they're not cheering and clapping or is it because he's brown? You yeah. know? So yeah. that that's an example of a time that it was, you know, we felt that people were looking at us differently and we're you know, we were hurt by it. So I really appreciate you sharing that with me. Like yeah. the the one thing I don't want to do in these conversations is like pigeonhole people into something and be like, yeah. Hey, I'm going to go ahead and tell you you're outside of some things. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want to know, like, is it true? Like, have you felt that way? Yeah. And how, and if so, um, as mutually Appalachian people, how do we make mm -hmm. that better? You yeah. know what I mean? Without compromising the things that we love about Appalachia. There are so many things that I love that are so unique to this area. And mm -hmm. when I go other places and I tell people about like going to decoration or eating ramps and mm -hmm. I'm like speaking a different language, mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Like I love the uniqueness of yeah. what we have. But at the same time, obviously hurts my heart to hear that people ever feel like they don't belong, you know? Yeah. So like, what do you think the most important what, what would you want to tell somebody that had ever had any kind of like outsider perspective on you and your family knowing that you know you're not an outsider you know Kenya is not an outsider um so how would you choose to communicate with people who would identify you as an outsider in your own in your own home <laughs> uh that that's an interesting and difficult question the more that people have exposure and experiences with people of different races and different ideologies and, and different, you know, I'd say religions, but even, you know, different viewpoints within Christianity, mm -hmm. um, allow them to understand the humanity of other people. And that we're, you know, we all have this same like goal in life just to, to, you know, live a happy life, possibly raise a family and, you know, just our common humanity that we're all trying to accomplish the same thing within our lives. And that, you know, just the color of our skin or, or, or necess maybe necessarily like our belief system doesn't make us any more or less humans, you know, human than others. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know if there's anything that I can actively do other than just continue to live my life, be kind to others, especially the ones that are, you know, we have negative experiences with and just, you know, I recently, I, I had an experience with someone and, you know, not necessarily that it was racially motivated because it was directed at me. Um, it was just, I guess, personal. And I just kept being kind and kept being kind and, and throughout our, uh, communication with each other and experiences with each other, you know, our relationship turned around. And I think yeah. it was just me, you know, trying to shower them with kindness continuously. Mm -hmm. And, you know, finally they saw me for who I really was. So we've talked a lot about your current family, which is beautiful and wonderful. Tell us a little bit more about your family of origin and family history. Just to talk a little bit about my family history, because I think that in, in learning my family history, that's given me perspective. And, and even though, you know, I'm people look at me and wouldn't think anything but, you know, all sets of my grandparents came to this country on on a boat from 
the British Isles because I'm white as a ghost. Um, <laughs> but in learning, you know, different the different lines of my family history, it it's really been kind of eye opening that even though I would identify and people would identify me by sight as as being white, I you know there are these components that um, you know were not European. My on my in my dad's family, you know, the, all the research I've done, every single line uh, came into this region um, at least the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a particular. It's my sixth great grandmother was born in at that time it was Haywood County, um, near the town of Robbinsville, so present day Graham County. In 1789, her her mother was. Cherokee Indian and her father was a Scotch-Irish trader Um, so he was a fur you know fur trader um, living at that time what what would have been the frontier Um, so that's you know all lines that I've researched on my father's side stretch back to the 1700s in -hmm. this region Um, so that's you know that's part of feeling Appalachian is that connection Um, my mother's side my 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 mother's mother um, was born and her family was from Wilkesboro. So still would be considered, you know, mm-hmm. Appalachian, you know, at least, you know, mountainous and foothills there. But uh, definitely they were, you know, living the rural life. And when she was 15 years old, they moved to Greensboro. Mm-hmm. So into the Piedmont. Um, and she really, you know, throughout her life could identify with like, like mountain culture, but also had this piece of her, you know, that she picked up and, and, and felt a part of as being, you know, in the Piedmont as well. Yeah. Um, her husband, which, you know, is my, my mother's father, he is a little bit more interesting, you know, and, and uh, kind of similar to in my dad's side. Um, he, his grandmother was from Lumberton, North Carolina. She was a Lumbee Indian. Mm-hmm. And his grandfather was no one knows what he was, but they would describe him as a mutt, and he was in a traveling circus. And his <laughs> circus cool. came through Lumberton, and they ran away together and settled in Greensboro. Nice. Um, so, you know, that being, I guess, you know, my great-great-grandparents mm-hmm. um, settling there in Greensboro, and then my grandmother moving to Greensboro, so my grandmother and grandfather uh, met in high school in Greensboro and, yeah. and were married. Um, so, you know, that that's my mother's side, you know, not necessarily fully just identifying with Appalachian culture, but my father's side very much. Um, so that was kind of the dynamic for me growing up was having, you know, this really, and my mother's side was for the most part, pretty highly educated. Um, her father had a PhD, her mother had a master's there, both in education, uh, and their brothers and sisters were in education as well. So there's this element of being very, educated not mm-hmm. having the mountain accent or or much of even a southern accent talking you know very proper versus my father's side who you know I'm the first one to have gone to college yeah. um my my dad did finish high school but you know he he was raised by his grandparents who were tobacco farmers mm-hmm. um you know they my dad was born in 1957 and not even 10 years before he was born was when they got indoor plumbing in their house so his <laughs> aunts and uncles uh, you know, took a bath in the creek. I mean, yeah. it's the full, the whole on, you know, a lot of the stereotypes, you know, they were using an outhouse. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. um, so certainly, you know, that, that was interesting duality for me, you know, growing up with the opposing sides of my family being mm-hmm. uh, very different. <laughs>
obviously no secret that we are in the dead middle of the Bible Belt, wherever the belt is. I don't even know. It's, it's <laughs> we're a, in the belt. We're the belt buckle here. <laughs> it's a more of a Bible cummerbund. It's pretty wide. Um, and most people in our region are some form of Protestant, and probably a majority of those Baptist. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, what has been your faith experience in Appalachia? Uh, okay. So <laughs> just to, just to kind of preface this. So now, uh, I religiously, I'm, I'm a Roman Catholic, so I would identify as being a Roman Catholic, but my religious experiences, it's a definitely an interesting journey. My dad, um, when he was growing up, they didn't regularly attend church, mm-hmm. but when they did, it would have been a Methodist church. Uh, my mom, when she she lived in Greensboro until she was six, um, and they were Moravian. Okay. Um, so when my mom was six, her dad had finished his PhD and got a job at Western Carolina University, and so they moved to Cullowee. Gotcha. Um, and obviously there's not a Moravian church in Cullowee nor anywhere else in Western North Carolina, mm-hmm. so they obviously were not going to a Moravian church anymore. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't really know what they did religiously. I think my mom kind of went to church a lot with friends and at different places. Um, but they weren't necessarily, you know, religious by any means. And then, you know, that kind of translated into my upbringing. I, I wasn't brought up religious at all. And I can't remember a single time that my mom or dad had said God or, or Jesus or any anything religious in context, like in conversation, yeah, not one time, uh, which is interesting, you know. Uh, my mom did when I was probably eight, nine, ten, something like that. She started going to a church near our house. I I don't remember the de- denomination, but um, my dad didn't want to get up and go, and so therefore I wasn't going either. Um, yeah. So I never had went with her, um, and that that didn't last too long. But she did do that for you know off and on for a few years. Um, so, you know, my parents, uh, you know, up until about three, four, five years ago, they didn't really go to church, but then they started going to a Methodist church and they both entered the Methodist church. So mm-hmm. they, they go to a certain Methodist church every Sunday. Um, and so back to me, uh, <laughs> when I, the first time I'd ever been to church was when I was 16 and me and who is now my wife at the time, my girlfriend, um, we'd started dating and, you know, she, she was being Mexican. She was Catholic, like, you know, 89, 90% of other Mexican people. Um, but she wasn't like going to church every Sunday all the time. You know, her upbringing was go to church on Easter and Christmas. And that was pretty much it. Um, but you know, during that time that we started dating, uh, she did start going pretty frequently, like pretty much every Sunday. And I was right there with her mainly just trying to impress her. I had no interest in going to church at all. Uh, You know, and and it was a good thing that like Catholic mass is capped at an hour pretty much universally. So I did my hour every Sunday to impress her and not late to lunch. Yeah. 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 And so, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yep. And, uh, so, you know, I could stand that hour in order to impress her and that went on, um, until, we had actually, we, we got married in a Catholic church. We went through um, the required like classes for a Catholic mm-hmm. and a non-Catholic to get married. Uh, the bishop of the diocese of, of Charlotte, uh, you know, had to give us permission, which is just kind of a formality. You know, yeah. he does, has to do that for all Catholic and non-Catholic weddings. Cool, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> so, 
uh, I did all that, you know, got the permission, uh, agreed that we would raise our kids Catholic because that's part of it as well. Um, and then uh, really still had no interest. <laughs> yeah. I went to church, you know, we and I and I did, you know, was faithful to, you know, having our kids baptized and taking them to their faith formation classes and and raising them as, as good Catholics, even though I had really had no interest. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, um, I'd kind of started doing a little bit of research of my own into different religious like beliefs mm-hmm. um and and eventually when we were living in Berea Kentucky and I was attending Berea College uh I was in uh, fall of 2011 I started going to the um re- religious initiation or no rite of initiation for Christian adults or something like that, <laughs> RCIA, RCIA, right? Christian Initiation for Adults. That's what it is, RCIA. Gotcha. And those are the classes required for someone to become Catholic. I went to the classes because I wanted to learn more about what I was going and seeing every Sunday. Mm-hmm. I did not have any intention of, of being baptized, you know, and, and coming into the church when I started the classes. Um, when I did start the, you know, I started the classes in, I think it was October maybe. Mm -hmm. And usually like about a year of of faith formation is required in RCIA. But when I started in October with the intention to be baptized the next Easter, which, you know, was March or April the Mm -hmm. next year, um, in, in the spring of 2012, uh, the guy running the class found out that I'd been going to mass for pretty much every Sunday for the last six years and was like, okay, well you already know all this stuff. So I was kind of fast tracked. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then in Easter, 2012, I was baptized, um, and, and confirmed and, you know, became a full fledged, you know, member of the church. Yeah. And, you know, uh, that's, that's kind of my story in a nutshell. And so really now, um, we're what 11 years later and, I can probably, you know, count the times that we've missed a Sunday mass on my two hands. So, yeah. uh, you know, not to say that like, you know, we're holier than now, but within Catholicism, you know, and this is for all our, our Protestant and non-Catholic listeners, <laughs> um, you know, like, it, like it's, 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 yeah, it's expected, you know, that you do attend mass once a week. So, mm-hmm. and it, you attend Sunday mass, um, and that, that is, is part of it. And it's, it's an obligation that I'm, I'm happy to fulfill. Uh, you know, a little bit more deep, you know, deeper into my kind of uh, journey through this, you know, when I came into Catholicism, I still had this kind of feeling or burden of like having to go to church every Sunday. Um, and at one point I'd listened to this speaker and I, I think it was maybe Matt, his name was Matthew Kelly mm-hmm. and really listening to his talk, um, you know, the content of it really changed my outlook and as to where like I look forward to going to mass. I'm now working in, in the Catholic school that my kids go to and it's right beside the church and I go to mass. I've been there for two weeks now and mm-hmm. I've been to mass, uh, eight times out of the last 10 opportunities, yeah. uh, at work. So, you know, that's, it's been great for, for me spir- spiritually to have that, um, ability to, you know, go to work. And that's part of my paid working day is that I can mm-hmm. go to church, you know, yeah. and that's definitely, uh, really changing my outlook on the world and just my level of happiness on a day-to-day basis the communal aspect has Mm -hmm. always been really cool to me too like you say lots of things together you move lots of ways together right yeah and and it's it's very different than going to church as a protestant because there is this 
this response from the community that mm-hmm. make it be a, a what would be thought of as a valid mass or that's it's not just someone preaching to you or reading from the bible it's it's going through this and and basically a lot of that is a reenactment of the last supper and that's yeah. you know that's you feel the spirituality in doing that that, that is very profound and, and hard to describe and people do it literally in mass like in multiple places all do the same thing Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and not just multiple places, but worldwide, no matter your language, if you're Roman Catholic, which there's, I believe, over a billion of us, Mm -hmm. we're all doing the same thing the same day, 365 days a year. That's crazy. Yeah. So what's it like to be Catholic in Appalachia? Right. So now back to the actual like content, that was the background. And now, you know, uh, so, you know, it's interesting, I guess you could say. There's not, I don't feel like there's a lot of opportunity that people can just look at me and like say, that guy's Catholic. Right. So, you know, obviously in talking like on the racial aspect of me and my wife's interracial marriage, that's something that's like an outward sign that, Mm -hmm. that can be picked, you know, people can pick that out right away, but you can't like look at us and just be like, people are probably like, yeah, they're probably Catholic, but you know that's not something that people can just look at me and say that guy's Catholic unless maybe I'm like wearing my rosary on the outside or something. He's not wearing rosaries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did for quite a while, but I, I've stopped wearing it recently, not because I'm becoming less religious. I just, I don't know why I, I stopped wearing it at some point. And I, you know, in, you know, you go through phases, but um, I don't have a lot of times that I can think of that I'm like, you know, this happened in my life because I'm Catholic. Mm-hmm. And if whether it was negative or, or positive, um, you know, I think it's really more it forms my relationship with others and the way that I behave with others and the way that I at least try to behave with others. that's not dictated by their behavior. Mm-hmm. I would say that um, I can give you a time. Uh, and I don't want to talk too loud because the story's about my neighbor, actually. Oh, nice. <laughs> the, We're on yeah. Andrew's front porch, <laughs> and um, I hope his neighbor listens to the podcast one day. www.fringeappalachia.com. <laughs> 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 okay, go ahead. Um, so when we first moved in, uh, and I, I don't really know how this came about, but my neighbor's riding around on his lawnmower with a rolling rock sitting in the cup holder. <laughs> Uh, which makes the story even that much odder. But <laughs> we had we had been to church, at, like, in the morning, um, probably for, like, a baptism or, you know, some kind of religious rite. Like, we don't just normally go to church twice in one day. But it was something special that was going on. Yeah. And he knew that we had been there. And then we're still dressed up in the evening or whatever it was. Somehow he's like, where are you headed? And I'm like, oh, we're going to, to mass, you know. So it's like our Sunday mass obligation, probably like on the vigil mass on a Saturday evening. And he's like, oh, where do you go to church? Or, you know, ask something like that. And they're like, oh, we go to St. Mary's. And he's like, oh, so you're Catholic. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am. And he's like, I don't, I don't care much for Catholics. Catholics drink. <laughs> and, and so for him to say that and be sipping on a rolling rock and and I, I assume that he was taking it from a perspective of like, you know, a lot of Protestants find, you know, the consumption of alcohol to be taboo. Mm-hmm. Um, even, and then, you know, as Catholics to take, uh, you know, a sip of wine at communion, you know, is I guess maybe 
juxtaposed positions for him, for, uh, you know, Christians in general, or at least, you know, Christians that he's been exposed to, um, to be, you know, to have this taboo at drinking, but then we go to church and drink. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if he just assumed like Catholics in non, you know, uh, sacramentally, we think that drinking is bad, but, you know, I I don't really understand where the comment came from, but (laughs) it was just, that's one of the times I can pick out that, there's like a weird experience because I'm Catholic, you know? That's awesome though. (laughs) Surely he had to understand the irony. Like maybe he's just a closet comedian. (laughs) Yeah, maybe he is. I don't know. I I really didn't get it, but I'm glad that it happened so I could share that with you and and get the little (laughs) chuckle that you have. (laughs) That's actually really funny. I can say, as far as being Catholic, I've had some some positive experiences um, in sharing in our common like Christian worldview with you know what I assume were Protestants. I don't know what you know sect they would have claimed to be a part of, but I I would be willing to bet that it was Baptist um, because this this was in Mitchell County. Right. Um, so we had a student that was, I believe she was 15 and she got pregnant Mm -hmm. and I was speaking with another teacher and, you know, we were talking about how, you know, this particular teacher wanted to do a baby shower for this girl. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the other teachers were really frowning on that because they felt like the, the baby shower was like glorifying the fact that she was 15 unwed and pregnant and not to mention the girl was Hispanic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so she had a lot of things going against her. Yeah. Um, but you know, in talking to that teacher and talking about, you know, yeah, it's not an ideal like situation, but you know, for her to, to be going through with having this baby, um, and because, you know, the, the girl believed and we were talking on, you know, our, you know, common Christian, like pro-life view, mm-hmm. um, you know, we really had a moment of like bonding, like, yeah, this isn't the ideal situation for this girl, but she's going to bring this kid into the world and and she's going to love it, even though it's not coming into an ideal situation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we just, I just found that to be very profound that, you know, and, and it came up in the conversation that I was Catholic and, you know, to share my Catholic worldview with this Protestant who possibly had never known another Catholic Mm -hmm. and to connect on that level to, you know, that she understood that there was more to Catholicism than like praying to Mary, as most people assume that we do. Um, that was a, a very profound and positive moment, like for me, uh, you know, talking about my Catholicism and, and my beliefs. And, and you know, it also played into that situation that, you know, in having my first child, I was 19 mm-hmm. and, and I wasn't married, even though, you know, I wasn't the, the one having the child, <laughs> but still I had that experience of being a teenager and having a kid on the way, unmarried yeah. and uneducated. Um, and one of the things that I made sure that I did for this, this kid, and I'm, I'm kind of going off topic, but I think this is important mm-hmm. is, you know, to tell her, you know, congratulations. Yeah. And that was a simple thing that I never heard that, it took that situation and me reflecting on my experience to understand no one had ever told me that. And that I just, I was glad that I had the opportunity to share that with her. If nothing else was going right in her world to say, you know, congratulations, you're about to bring a life into this world and, mm-hmm. and you're going to love this kid more than you've ever loved anything. And you don't even know yet what yeah. that's going to be like. So, you know, and that was coming from a place of, 
you know, rooted in my faith Mm -hmm. that, you know, because of my faith, I had this positive experience and was able to share my faith with someone who probably didn't understand it very well. Especially in this region, too, but there's tons of stereotypes around unwed mothers. Mm Mm-hmm. You have somebody who gets pregnant as a teenager and they get sent to a home for mm-hmm. unwed mothers yeah. because it's it's so shameful that you can't even be in your house. You right. can't even talk to people about it. You have to be sent away somewhere. And I think part of Appalachian culture that is so proud and so private has like manifested in some of those negative aspects like mm-hmm. that if you get pregnant and you're not married, there's there's shame. It's contradictory to like what Protestant or Catholic faith would say, you know, um, that we're creating all this shame, making women not want to be pregnant anymore. Mm. Um, and yet we're encouraging them to, to bring life into the world, but we're not really encouraging them when, when it happens. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And, and we can live by this creed in this way, uh, for everyone else and everyone else needs to abide by it, but not when it happens to my family, like we gotta, we gotta protect our, our name and our image in the community, you know, and that's, that is put above all, you know, everything else. And, and, I find that to be interesting. So we've talked about how you're balancing Appalachian culture with other aspects of your family history or your current circumstances that may not stereotypically fit within Appalachian culture. I would love to hear more about how you and Kenya are raising your kids with um, respect and acknowledgement of the two very different cultures that they come from. Um, so how are you guys doing that in your daily lives? So, you know, as we've spoken about before, my wife, uh, born, lived in Mexico until she was five, uh, came to the U S undocumented. I might, I might add, um, you know, and that's a story for another time, but, uh, so she's Mexican. <laughs> in conclusion. Uh, yeah, yeah, in conclusion. Uh and and if you hadn't gathered as much from this, I'm white. So, <laughs> you know, we and, and Appalachian, I identify as Appalachian, but uh having kids that their mother is from Mexico and their dad's from here and white um creates I think at least on their part um it, it creates maybe some disadvantages for them, but it also allows us to really talk to them and and try to get them to understand that that both sides of their family bring important cultural um, aspects that they should be proud of and and not to lose you know I think a lot of people um, a hundred years ago that would have immigrated this country or or that did immigrate to this country uh, were very adamant that their kids speak only English in an attempt to fit in and, and how many families, you know, change their, their last name. You know, my dad's aunt's husband, his last name is Sir Savage. They're from Lithuania. When they came to this country, uh, you know, their name wasn't spelled as Sir Savage. You know, it was something completely, you know, different. And Mm -hmm. that was the, the, you know, anglicizing of that name. Right. And, you know, his grandparents or, you know, whoever immigrated spoke, you know, Lithuanian, but that didn't carry down and and Mm -hmm. he doesn't, you know. So in our family, and I think that's that's changed a lot, you know, for good or bad over the last, you know, 50 years or whatever uh, to now a lot of, you know, people really push holding on to that. And and I think, too, that may be a southern thing as well, because Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, in the north, 
people identify with their family origin. You know, they they would be, you know, they would say, I'm Italian. Well, they're not Italian because they were born here. Their grandparents immigrated from right. Italy, but they still identify as being Italian or Italian-American. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, I think people in the South, that's not something that's held on to as much. At least in my experience, I don't think people gravitate towards, you know, their family origin as much. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so within our family, we've... We've really, to different degrees with our three children, we've um, tried to make sure that they can speak Spanish, um, you know, and, and to varying success levels. Uh, mm-hmm. So our oldest is 11, and he's been translating for his grandparents, or at least his grandmother, um, f- you know, since he could talk, really. And, and I would say that Spanish was his first language when he was two years old. My parents would say stuff to him, and he didn't really understand. But us knowing that, you know, living in an English-speaking society, that the English would come. Mm-hmm. So we really focused the first two years and tried only to speak Spanish to him. Um, our next child, our daughter, who's now eight, um, we weren't, for whatever reason, uh, weren't as good about that. And I think it's because we, we had a couple stints living with my parents mm-hmm. and it was, it was harder living in, you know, my parents' home to only speak Spanish to her. And I think that really has handicapped her. She understands really well, but she's very hesitant to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, we're working on that. And then our youngest, he's, he'll be too soon. And we've, we've really tried and probably not as much as we did with our first, but we've really tried to speak Spanish with him, if not exclusively mm-hmm. a whole lot. And it's interesting how his speech now, you know, I'd say 90% of his vocabulary is in Spanish, but his, his, his syntax, his word order is in English. Oh, so it's, cool. it's very interesting. So he'll yeah. say like, um, he calls his grandmother Ma and Casa is house in Spanish. So he'll say like Ma's casa and so that's like ma's house how we would say it in english instead of la casa de ma which would be like the house of ma you know the house of my grandma usually an apostrophe s yeah yeah exactly (laughs) so that's interesting how his his language structure is you know developing based on that um you know just the english and spanish dynamics but and a lot of people will be like you know don't you think that would confuse them and Mm -hmm. no it doesn't like and people will ask you know what's your kid's first language and i'm like well you know, it, it doesn't have to be one or the mm-hmm. other. It can be both, you know. Yeah. So that's kind of our experience in, in trying to raise our kids and, and beyond the language, you know, do things with the Hispanic community that uh, my in-laws are, you know, a part of in Asheville. And it's very, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's definitely like this whole community. It's crazy. I tell them all the time that there's so many people from their state in Mexico that live in Asheville. It's like, does anybody live in that part of Mexico anymore? Cause I think they're all in Asheville. So, you know, that's, that's an interesting dynamic that, you know, my kids are still able in, in some degree to have these experiences that are culturally based in, you know, in a, in a certain state, if not a certain town in, yeah. in, you know, South central Mexico. Um, having never been there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting. And then, but also, you know, really talking to my kids about the history of the Appalachian life and what it was like, you know, for my dad growing up with his grandparents farming tobacco and, you know, before interstate 40 was built, you know, what is now an hour journey would take them three, three and a half hours for him mm-hmm. to come to Asheville from Bryson city to sell tobacco. And then, you know, that's the one time a year my dad would get a new pair of shoes, whether he outgrew them or not. Um, you know, and just be really prideful of like, you know, where we are now, not to say that we're like rich, but compared to, you know, 
one generation, two generations ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're really comfortable compared to them. Um, and, and that's come with sacrifice and hard work and not just, you know, on me and my wife's part, but my, my father and, mm-hmm. and, you know, his parents or grandparents, you know, and it's, it's just trying to make sure each generation's a little bit better off than you were. Yeah. And that's, I think, parallels an immigrant story um, within Appalachia. So I've thought of the parallel between like decoration. So you're familiar with decoration and Dia de los Muertos. Okay. That's not making the cut because I don't know if I'm saying it. Right. Yeah. No, you, your <laughs> pronunciation was really good and it probably should make the cut. Okay, good. I, <laughs> I did win the Spanish award twice in high school. Shout out to Miss um, Martin. <laughs> Anyways, um, I've often thought like when the movie Coco came out, as dumb as that is, as I was watching it, I was like, man, there are so many parallels to decoration in like honoring of ancestors um respecting history like (coughs) legacies living on and i've always thought those parallels are super cool like from your perspective do you see parallel in that or is that just me being naive to what that holiday actually is uh i have actually never thought of that yeah (laughs) as crazy as that is but also i will say that like the only part of my family that would that does decoration and, and would have done decoration with me growing up was my, my dad's part mm-hmm. of the family in, in, uh, in Bryson city. Um, so I think any time that it, we had went over there and it was like, it was decoration. Like I didn't really get it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really, because I didn't, I didn't go to a lot mm-hmm. and I've started as an adult, like going over there and then, you know, my, my dad's father's part of the family from from Cherokee County, North Carolina, uh, mm-hmm. in Andrews. Um, you know, I've been over there for one there as well, and yeah. and pretty much all of our family there is in one cemetery. Mm-hmm. And you know, so which you know, in, in Bruston City, a lot of our families in the same cemetery as well. So, uh, but definitely, you know, to hear you say that, yeah, I can definitely see parallels bet- between decoration and Dia de los Muertos. Um, that was better. Yours was better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had quite a bit of practice. So, so I was like, you know, I, I, was going I for. pretty much speak Spanish every day of my life, you know, for the last, you know, over a decade. So, yeah. okay. um, you know, I've had I've had some practice. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I and I, I think that, you know, it s- kind of stretches back across culturally and within Appalachia we've held on to a lot of cultural traditions that would be rooted in things that people were doing in Europe many mm-hmm. centuries ago and, and preserved a lot of things of the old country, you know, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, more so than other parts of the U S and also, you know, that's happened in, in Mexico as well. And I see a lot of parts of like Mexican culture in Mexico in general, especially like, the towns and the rural areas to be, you know, a generation behind where we are in the United States, Mm -hmm. you know, in a lot of ways. Um, And I think, you know, for good or bad, that is allowed people to hold on to cultural traditions of, you know, their ancestors that have been passed down. And um, so I think that's also happened in Appalachia Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's, but it's starting to go away, you know, and I can, I've seen that as an educator that, you know, working in, in Mitchell County, North Carolina, and also worked in Yancey County. And I really started to notice it when I was working in Yancey County that you could sit outside of Mountain Heritage High School when the kids are let out and 
there wouldn't be a lot of differences between that and if if you set outside of a, a school in Charlotte, mm-hmm. the kids are pulling out listening to the same type of music. They're going to be dressed the same way, you know. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because if you go back, you know, 15, 20 years, mm-hmm. that wasn't the case, you know. And it, yeah. it very quickly, and I attribute that to social media, the, the internet, internet yeah. the internet, <laughs> and their exposure to the outside world, and and what trends are happening where you know in other places. Whereas you know, twenty years ago, they might have seen that on TV mm-hmm. if they happened to watch like MTV or whatever, yeah. you know. But thirty going back thirty years ago, you know that wouldn't have been the case because they just didn't have any exposure to it. Yeah. So I think that that's going to go away in Appalachia mm-hmm. and we're going to lose, and we're already losing a lot of our, our cultural elements and tradition, you know, yeah. like canning, making apple butter, you mm-hmm. know, uh, growing tobacco. Like when's the last time you saw a tobacco plant? Like, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that, yeah, that's a great connection and parallel to draw. And, mm-hmm. and that's awesome that, you know, you've identified that, um, or, you know, and other people, I'm sure there's probably like, you know, scholarly research on it out there. Yeah. But I think if that's something that, that needs to be like expounded upon more that somebody better do it quick because yeah. the opportunity is fading. Yeah. So, yeah. I definitely feel not pressure from anyone, but put pressure on myself thinking that I could very well be the last generation that does decoration. Um, that like every year that I've gone, there have been fewer and fewer people there um, because new people aren't coming. The old people are mm-hmm. just dying, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I've definitely felt the pressure of that before, but I've always enjoyed the reaction of people when they're like, so tell me what is decoration? I'm like, basically it's a, a big celebration of all the dead people that we love. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, yeah. There's no, <laughs> there's no graceful, more graceful way to say it. And, um, I just think it's really cool that there's like a cultural parallel to that yeah. in Mexico as well. Yeah. And it's pretty cool that your kids have both cultures that are so tied to like heritage yeah. and legacy. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really neat. Another big thank you to Andrew Cooper for being on the podcast this go around. Really enjoyed hearing from you and your perspective. And I think I learned a lot. So I hope the rest of the listeners did too. Uh, Come back next time. We've got more people and we're talking about Appalachia. So, I mean, what's not to love? See y'all next time.